This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of James, chapter number 4. James 4 is where we're at. Uh, We're going to be in verses 9 and 10. (coughs) If you're missing the message so far, get caught up on the Hui Kala app. Hui Kala app is also going to have your notes for tonight. Uh, Keep your Bibles open tonight. Uh, We're going to be taking a look at at several different passages of Scripture tonight. uh, And I'm just going to preface tonight's message and just tell you ahead of time. This is going to be hard, okay? Now, I'm not a... I wouldn't characterize myself as a hard preacher. Uh, I, I've heard what we might categorize as hard preaching. Sometimes it just borders into angry preaching. Uh, I'm not an angry preacher, but I'm passionate about truth. Uh, and tonight's message, I believe, is going to be really, really important for us. Uh, there, there might be times where it, it, it stings a little bit, but just know um, the Bible hits us with stuff that we need to hear from time to time. If it, if it hurts, I'll give you a hug afterwards. How about that? James chapter 4, uh, we're going to start in verse number, um, let's start in verse number 7, we're really going to spend our time in verses 9 and 10 tonight, uh, again keep your Bibles open because we're going to be taking a look at a couple different passages of scripture. <clears throat> verse number, what did I say, verse number 5? Seven. 7, okay, I forget, sorry, it's been a long day. Read it all, uh, all of chapter 4. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, okay, we're starting verse number 7. James chapter 4, verse number 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This was last week, if you remember. Uh, review. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So that's the context. That's the setup for this, Okay. Draw nigh unto God, he'll draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Cleanse your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. One of the most troubling things as a pastor that I have ever witnessed is Christians who have lost the ability to feel sorrow for sin. The title of tonight's message is just that, sorrow for sin. It's hard to watch Christians who can continue to live in habitual sin again and again and again, and it just doesn't bother them anymore. That shows me that you have a heart that is so far from God. When we sin against God, we should feel guilt, shame. We should be convicted by our sin. That's helpful. And whenever Christians can sin against God and not feel any conviction, feel no remorse, feel no shame for sin, that's a major, major problem. I remember as a kid, uh, again, probably a teenager, doing uh, foolish things. Uh, when my parents were out of town, me and my buddies used to take my dad's uh, 
Camaro. He had an IROC Z. I don't know if anybody remembers those back in the day. Uh, 350 tune port injection engine. We would take it out. We would drive it down to the end of the, of the road where there were no houses, and we would just light the tires up down there. I mean, just billowing smoke, uh, you know, and just try to hold it on the road, fish tailing left and right everywhere. Uh, then my, when that wasn't fun anymore, we got my dad's shotgun, and we made sure that every stop sign got hit with the shotgun at the end of the road. And so we won't, oh, I didn't think we got that one yet over there. So we drive over there, get out, shoot my dad's shotgun. And it, and foolish, foolish things. Kids don't ever do these types of things. Terrible things will happen, okay? But I remember going back and trying to cover all of my tracks to make sure that I didn't get noticed. Uh, that that my, I hung up my dad's uh, keys in the exact same place that they were before. I make sure that I, I even put rocks to mark where it was parked at to make sure that it was exactly where it needed to be. Because I didn't want to get caught. I made sure that, that I, I moved his shotgun shells around so that they looked full in the box that I had shot him out of because I didn't want to get caught. And I remember the, the, the feeling of, of guilt and shame and just hoping that I didn't get found out. Fast forward to the culture that we live in today. Teenagers revel in putting these things online publicly to get more views, to get more likes, People revel in the idea of flaunting their sin. We're, we're no longer ashamed of our sin. There's people who have been a part of who we call a Baptist church that I've lost touch with over the years, and somebody will come across them on social media and say, hey, did you know that so-and-so left their wife and moved in with their girlfriend? I didn't know that. And sure enough, they're on their social media page, a guy who left his wife and his kids for a woman who's about the same age as one of his daughters posted it there, super proud on social media of it. And I look at that and my heart hurts. Because here you have a man who professed to be a Christian, who's obviously living in sin, but has no qualms about it whatsoever, and is even, if anything, proud of his sin. That grieves my heart, but more so, and more importantly, it grieves the heart of God. When it comes to sin, sin brings shame. When we no longer feel guilt or shame for sin, something is amiss in our hearts. When you're saved, like Bible born again, the Bible says that you get the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. And one of the responsibilities, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin. When you sin against God, the Holy Spirit pricks you and says, hey, don't do that. Remember what the Bible says. Because again, one of the, the jobs of the Holy Spirit is not to speak in tongues or to heal or to do supernatural sign gifts or, or signs and wonders. The job of the Holy Spirit is to make you holy and to remind you of everything that Jesus Christ said. And when you sin against God, the Holy Spirit will prick you and say, hey, remember that Bible verse where Jesus said, X, what you did was wrong, and we feel guilt, we feel shame for our sin. That's normal, that's natural, that's healthy, that's good. Because when you can sin against God yet feel no shame, you're in a dangerous, dangerous position. Now, what you do with that guilt and shame will determine whether you take this a healthy direction or an unhealthy direction. But when you can sin against God, sin against the Holy Spirit, and you feel no shame, feel no guilt, there's a problem somewhere and you need to get checked out. We should be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse number 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And here's what it says about the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So one of the things that we need to make sure that we do in our lives is we stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit in every area of my life. That feeling that you have when you look at your Bible and you haven't read it in a week, and that prick that says, hey, just open it up. It'll take five minutes to get something from the Word of God. That's the Holy Spirit. Don't turn that off. Don't go, oh, yeah, I'll do that tomorrow. Don't do that. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit gets you tomorrow morning, and says, hey, remember yesterday at church you raised your hand and said you wanted to be more faithful steward of the gospel. How about you invite your coworker to church this week? And you're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't feel good. I, I think I'll wait till next week. That's the Holy Spirit. And you've got to remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Because, again, there comes a point where you push off the Holy Spirit for so long that you quench the Spirit and you no longer hear the Holy Spirit talking to you. That's a dangerous place to be in. So I've got I to maintain sensitivity that when the Holy Spirit speaks, I'm, I'm responsive to that. I, I don't want to, because again, to, to sin is one thing, okay? But to sin and refuse to make it right, even when prompted by the Holy Spirit, is now willful rebellion against the Spirit of God even. It puts you in a separate category of, of rebellion now at that point. So we've got to maintain sensitivity to that. Sometimes though, we sin against God, we don't feel convicted for our sin. So that means sometimes we need to be confronted of our sin. I think of David, how David had taken a woman that wasn't his wife and had her husband killed. Didn't see anything wrong with it. And here's the, the part that there's a thousand different things in the story of, of David and Bathsheba that grieved my heart. One of the things that grieves me the most about David is that of all the things that he did, there was nobody there to say, hey, David, stop. You don't want to do this. David said, hey, I saw a naked lady on the, the rooftop over there. Go get her for me. There wasn't anybody who said, oh, hold up, David. You don't want to go there. You know what they did? Okay, we'll go get her. Hey, bring her into me so that I can be with her sexually. Okay. Right this way, Bathsheba. Hey, take her back home. Yeah, no problem. Hey, bring her husband back from battle because she's pregnant. I want to make this look like he, he was the one that did it. Okay, yeah, we will. And David just had a lot of people in his life where they were totally complicit to his sin. Danger. You and I both need Christian friends who will say, I, 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 I don't think you want to do that. Amen. Take a step back. Breathe for a minute. You don't want to go there. But then when David continued in his sin... He didn't feel badly about it. So Nathan the prophet confronted him. He said, David, what would you do? There's a guy who has all the sheep in the, he could have in the world. And there's this one guy who has one little lamb. And this guy who has everything went and took this guy's one little lamb. What should happen to that guy? And David says, oh, the guy who stole the, the guy's lamb, that guy should totally die. And Nathan says... That's you, David. That, that's you that sinned against God that same way by taking a woman that belonged to Uriah the Hittite. And here's what David says in 
2 Samuel chapter 12, verse number 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord hath put away thy sin, and thou shalt not die. David was confronted by his sin. He goes, oh no, I really messed up here. And so while David had not yet felt the conviction of his sin, when confronted by another solid Christian, David felt the weight of his own sinful condition. So again, I don't necessarily believe that every person who is living a lifestyle of sin maybe is living in, in, in wanton rebellion against God. Some people are just totally ignorant. Well, I mean like growing up in church, you know, that's just kind of one of the things that we did. It wasn't a big deal. Hey, you know, we look at the society today. I know Christians that, you know, live with their, their, their boyfriend, their girlfriend before they get married. It's just what people do. Is it really that big of a deal? But then con when confronted with Scripture... Now you can no longer claim ignorance. Now you know what you have to do. What are you going to do? When confronted with biblical truth, I have two, only two choices. I'm either going to obey or I'm going to disobey. Kids, this is really important for you. When your parents tell you what to do, you have two choices. You can obey or you can disobey. And whether you receive blessings or cursing is based on obedience or disobedience. This also helps children as well as adults. There's no such thing as partial obedience, okay? There's only disobedience or obedience. It's black or white. It's binary. It's one or the other. It's on or it's off. So when it comes to being confronted with our sin, then it comes a question, what are we going to do with it? When we talk about sin, it's really important that we call it what it is. When we talk about our sins as shortcomings, failures, bad habits, we mischaracterize our sin and fail to see it as an affront against a holy God. Your lack of Bible reading. Let's not just say it's poor time management. Why don't you call it a sin of idolatry? Well, I don't think it's idolatry. Okay, what takes your time that you don't have time to spend time with God and his word? Well, I'm really busy with work. Okay, so work takes priority over God. Well, I didn't say that. No, I'm saying it for you. Call it what it is. It's idolatry. I don't have time to pray. <clears throat> you have the same amount of time that everybody else has. Maybe it's not a priority. Maybe you don't believe that God really cares about prayer. Maybe you don't believe that God can answer prayer. And again, that uncovers a whole other depth of sinfulness in your heart as well. And so again, we just got to call this for what it is. Not poor time management, not bad habits that I have. Oh, I've got some, some demons that I've been battling my whole life. Stop saying stuff like that. It's a sin that for whatever reason, you have not gotten victory over. But please understand this. When it comes to victory over sin, the problem is never with the real solution, Jesus. If you and I fail to have victory over sin, it's because it's a failure on our part, 100%. Romans chapter 6 says, sin hath no more dominion over you. If you continue to fail in sin in a cycle, it's 100% your fault. And Jesus is 100% the answer. So again, we have to call it what it is. That's why, again, any gospel presentation, just like we talked about this morning, that leaves out the word sin, doesn't really get to the root of the issue. Jesus didn't die for bad habits. Jesus didn't die for shortcomings. Jesus didn't die for personal failures. Jesus died for sin.
And Jesus is a savior for sinners. And so again, we got to call this what the Bible calls it. We got to view it in a, from a biblical perspective. Now, this passage of scripture tells us in, in uh, James chapter four that we should, when it comes to our sin, we should, verse nine, be afflicted, we should mourn and we should weep. We're not gonna laugh about our sin. Our laughter is gonna be turned to mourning. We're not gonna be happy because of our sin. Our joy is gonna be turned to heaviness, according to verse number nine. And the Old Testament sets a precedence of sorrow for sin. There's three major things that we see in Scripture that show a deep Old Testament sorrow for sin. Three things. There's probably more, but here's the three that jump off the page at me. First of all, we see the tearing of clothes. Tearing of clothes is a symbol of the inward anguish of the mourner's feeling, a violent expression of emotional pain, an outward sign to others that that person is suffering great inner turmoil. In moments of great anguish, a grief-stricken person might tear whatever clothing they were wearing. So again, somebody gets bad news, they would take their, their shirt and rip it. They take their, their gown that they're wearing and rip it and tear it. And so everybody sees like, whoa, something just happened in a big way. Mind you, please understand, in the Old Testament, people didn't punch walls. People didn't throw stuff. Righteous anger was expressed by tearing their clothes. Like, I am so overwhelmed with grief, with anguish, that I have no choice but to, to tear even my own clothes. Uh, we see this, uh, turn if you would to um, Genesis chapter 37 in your Bible. <laughs> Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Jacob, uh, Joseph was most hated by his brothers. And so his brothers acted like they killed him or he was killed by an animal and they sold him into slavery instead. Genesis chapter 37, verse 31. Genesis 37, 31. They took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in blood. They sent the coat of many colors and brought it to their father and says, we found this. Now, whether it be thy son's coat or no, and he knew it, and said, it's my son's coat. <laughs> Isn't it funny? Joseph's brothers were a pack of liars. Hey, we found another coat of many colors that happens to be covered in blood. We're not sure if it's Joseph's or not, Dad. Would you look at it? Because there's, there's so many coats of many colors that are out there. Just a, a bunch of absolute dirtbags. And what happened? Dad says, he knew it and said, this is my son's coat, an evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt rent in pieces. Hey, the blood in this coat means that they tore this kid to pieces. And Jacob, dad, rent his clothes, tore his clothes, and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned his son for many days. So Jacob, overcome with grief, tears his clothes Places sackcloth upon him, we'll talk about that in just a minute, and mourned for many days. Second Samuel, turn to Second Samuel chapter 1 if you would. Again, I told you, keep your Bible handy. We'll be looking at a few different passages of Scripture before we settle in uh, to our text here tonight. Second Samuel chapter 1.
2 Samuel chapter 1, verse number 9. Here we have the death of Saul. David finds out about it. So a guy comes back and reports to David that Saul said this. He said unto me again, stand, I pray upon me and slay me for anguish has come upon me because my life is yet whole in me. So the, the guy who's reporting back says, so I stood on him and I slew him because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. I took the crown that upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and brought hither unto my Lord. He says, tells David, David, I found Saul. He was dying and was about to die. I knew that he couldn't live. And so Saul asked me to take his life. I killed him, I took his crown, I took his bracelet, and I brought it to you. Verse number 11, then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, tore them, and likewise all the men that were with him. And they found out that, that Saul had died, and they tore their clothes. They were so grieved by this. The second type of, of sorrow for sin that we see in the Old Testament is the wearing of sackcloth. Sackcloth is a cloth made from goat's hair, hemp, cotton, or flax, and weaved into like burlap. These things were worn as a sign of mourning or penitence. So sackcloth we think of like as a potato sack, like a burlap sack. It was really harsh uh, in the way that it was woven. It was a, uh, if you know anything about clothing, it was a woven type of fabric as opposed to a spun. Well, like when we spin cotton, it's very soft as opposed to being woven, woven are typically very stiff and very hard. So to wear sackcloth was physically uncomfortable. But if you saw somebody who had torn their clothes and put on a sackcloth, you realize, man, this guy's going through it. This person is deeply, deeply grieving. We see this take place in the book of Jonah. Turn it to Jonah if you would. Jonah chapter 3. So if you remember the story of of Jonah, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah said no, and he went to Tarshish instead. God had him swallowed up by a whale. Three days he spent in the whale's belly. God had him vomited up, and and Jonah goes to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is a place where uh, where Jonah says, Nobody's going to get saved there. Nobody's going to listen to me. These people are wicked as wicked can be. If anybody deserves God's judgment, it's Nineveh. But God says go, and so he finally goes. uh, Jonah chapter 3, verse number 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He laid his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So here we see another instance where take their clothes off and put on these sackcloth. Why? To show I am grieved by this. I want everybody who looks at me to see I'm not okay with what's taking place here. And I'm currently in a grieving period. Now, mind you, what were the, the people of Nineveh grieving over? They were grieving over their own sin. They recognized, they, I love what Jonah chapter 3 says, they believed God. They said, wow, 
we've really messed up. And you know what they didn't say? Oh, we're so thankful for God's forgiveness. He's so gracious, amen. Whenever we fail, God's just there to keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. They said, no, 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 wait. We've transgressed God? Oh, this is troublesome. Hey, we're going to take our clothes off and put on sackcloth because we want to grieve over what we've done. The oldest to the youngest. Mommy, why do we have to wear these clothes? They're so itchy. Because we've sinned against God, sweetheart. And, and mommy and daddy are very sad about that. And so we're going to wear these clothes because we can't be happy if we've broken God's law. It was a way of mourning for what they had done. Made even their children wear these. The king of Nineveh took off his royal robes for the purpose of putting on sackcloth and then sat in ashes. We'll get to that in just a second. Turn to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 21. <coughs> A story I alluded to last Sunday night. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Uh, for those of you that were to me in verse 14 in just a sec. God told David, David, don't take account of your army. I want your trust to be in me. Don't take a census to find out how many animals you got, how many chariots you got, how many men you got that are ready to fight for you. Don't do any of that. Just trust me that I am enough. If you remember last week, we saw that, that Satan tempted David to number Israel. And so that's what he did. David numbered Israel. says, hey guys, go out and get a count for me. Again, David didn't have any men in his life that said, David, I'm not going to let you do that, man. I'm not going to let you violate God's law. David says, hey, get me a count. And they said, yes, sir. And they went out and they, David numbered Israel. As a result of that, God sent a pestilence on Israel. First Chronicles chapter 21, if you're there, verse number 14. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel. Now, mind you, who sinned here? David did. One person. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. And God sent an angel into Jerusalem to destroy it. So, again, if you can imagine me as a pastor sitting across the table from someone who says to me, Pastor, I feel like everybody should just mind their own business because my sin only affects me. <laughs> Have you ever read the Bible before? To sit across the table from some guy who says, I'm going to leave my wife, but God bless David after his sin. God will bless me. Have you ever read the Bible before outside of the fact that David was just forgiven? Please. Please, don't ever use David as your excuse to willfully disobey God's commandments. Just don't do it. Like, if David were alive, he'd come slap you himself. That's how foolish that is. David sinned against God. God says, don't take account. David took account. And 70,000 men died because of one man's sin. Get that. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld and he repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, it's enough. Now, again, it's important to understand. 
The word repent means to change your mind or to turn from a direction. And so God has killed 70,000 people and he's going to go destroy all of Jerusalem, but God stopped for a minute and he changed his mind. Now mind you, God repented. It does not mean that God had sinned, that God had done anything wrong. God just changed his mind. Okay? That's really important because sometimes people get hung up on the word repent. The word repent does not mean to stop sinning. The word repent means to change your mind and change your direction. And when you and I repent of sin, we change our mind that what we're doing is okay and we, we agree with God that it's not okay. And we turn our direction as a result of what we believe. Now, so God says to the angel, stop, I'm done. I've made my point. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, and David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between heaven and earth, having a sword drawn in his hand stretched out over, Israel, over Jerusalem. Now, I don't understand what that would feel like. Now, mind you, some Bible scholars believe, and I would probably be in this camp that agree with this, that when it refers to the angel of the Lord as opposed to an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, sometimes in the Old Testament, speaking of Christ himself. We call that a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. You should totally read a book on that. It'll knock your socks off, right? But can you imagine looking up in the sky after 70,000 people have died because of you and you see an angel with a sword getting ready to absolutely obliterate everyone? I cannot imagine the fear that would overcome somebody in seeing that right there. What did David do that was so bad? He counted. Can you not count? Let me tell you this. You better not count when God says don't count. Amen. What did David do that was so bad? He disobeyed God. That's it. He took a census. Is that worth killing 70,000 people over? I don't know. Ask God and see what he thinks. I think God would say yes. And so what did David do when he saw that? See the angel of the Lord with a, a, a sword drawn, stretched out over Jerusalem. The David and the elders who were clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. Guys, we have seriously messed up here. And he gathered together all of the elders. These were the, the men who would lead these tribes. Uh, these were the older men that were more seasoned, who uh, would, would lead groups and clans and families. Guys, get together, tear your clothes off, put on these sackcloth, and put your face to the ground so that God knows we are grieved over what we've done. You notice David didn't say, oh, come on, God, I said I was sorry, what's the big deal? Really, God, are you going to do this to me? I mean, you said you were gracious, you said that you would forgive. No, 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 he was gripped by the fact that he had disobeyed God and he just wanted to lay on his face until God chose to be gracious. I'm talking about sorrow for sin. And when we no longer have sorrow for sin, we cheapen the grace of God. Like imagine David just saying, come on God, not that big of a deal. I said, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, I won't count again. Does that really recognize the wrath of God, the punishment for sin? Does it, does it draw attention to the grace of God or does it say, come on God, stop being, 
so hard on this. So we see tearing of clothes, wearing of sackcloth. The third thing that we see in the Old Testament that shows a grief over sin is ashes placed upon the head. Ashes were placed upon the head of the mourner in an outward public act of shame, disgrace, and dishonor. So here we see three things that would take place. Having ashes on your head was just to say, I am, I am grieved, I am embarrassed, I am ashamed. What I have done has been disgraceful, dishonoring to God, and also it shows that I am 100% responsible for this. When it comes to the placing of ashes upon the head, the pastor didn't go by and put ashes on people's head for them. Oh, you're ashamed, you're an embarrassment, and place ashes on somebody's head. That didn't happen. Nobody would go and tear somebody else's clothes and put sackcloth on them and make them sit in the corner. God doesn't do that. It was all personal responsibility. I'm embarrassed by what I've done. I'm ashamed for what I've done. I want everyone to know if you've seen what I've done, I am so beside myself grieved over what I've done. So you see some guy with his face on the ground, ashes all over his head in sackcloth, you'd be like, whoa, that dude's going through it. He's in a tough spot there. Man, that guy, man, he's grieved over something for sure. We see in Esther chapter 4, verse number 1, Mordecai perceived that all this was done. Mordecai rent his clothes, put on sackcloth with ashes, went out into the midst of the city and cried aloud with a bitter cry. Jeremiah 6, 26, O daughter of my people, gird thee with sackcloth, wallow thyself in ashes, make thee mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation for the spoiler shall suddenly come upon us. Jeremiah's telling the children of Israel, guys, knock it off. Tear your clothes. Put on sackcloth. Don't just put ashes on your head. Roll around in ashes because you have violated God in a serious way and you feel no remorse whatsoever. Daniel chapter 9, verse number 3. Daniel says, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek my prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So we see tearing of clothes, wearing of sackcloth, Ashes on the head were ways that they said, I am deeply sorrowful. I'm in a period of mourning over what? Over my sin. Grieved. So again, when we look back at the Old Testament, there, there was a, a depth of weight associated with the guilt for sin. Let me just tell you this. This grief for sin is nearly non-existent in present-day Christianity. Again, we say things like, well, he made a mistake, and he's, he's apologized for it. Wow, really? No, he sinned against the holy God, and he needs to repent. Well, he, he prayed and asked the Lord to forgive him. Uh, repentance is deeper than just saying that you're sorry to God. Repentance is walking a walk, fruits of repentance. There should be visible evidence of repentance of sin. But again, 
we say that sin is not that big of a deal. It's not that bad, but in God's eyes, it's totally bad. When we become comfortable for sin, with sin, it shows a lack of spiritual maturity and a lack of understanding of God's character. I remember several years ago, I was discipling a, a couple, and they were living together. They weren't married at the time, and by like week three or four, we established a good relationship and began talking to them about their uh, situation, their living situation. And I said, well, you, you need to get married because living together outside of marriage is a sin uh, before God. And the, the woman in the relationship just began bawling. And she said, Pastor, I'm sorry I didn't know. And again, that goes back to sometimes you need to be confronted with your sin out of ignorance. She began to cry and she says, I'm sorry I didn't know. And here's what she said, I'm so embarrassed. She said, other people in our church know that what we're doing is wrong. I said, they do. And she was like, I'm so embarrassed. She said, should we find another church? Heavens, no. If you're going to get the help that you need, you're going to get the help that you need from your church. But I remember that look on her face. If I live to be 100, I'll never forget the look on her face when she realized, like, whoa, what I've done is wrong, and I'm so embarrassed by that. And it... it it struck a chord with me because you don't see that anymore. People are like, yeah, 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 I know it's wrong, but. There was a couple who had attended church here, this is probably four or five years ago. They, they'd been in a week all, it was like their second week here, they're getting to know people and stuff like that. And yeah, he, she'd grown up in a pastor's home uh, and he'd been a Christian for a really long time. And they're leaving and I asked them, I said, uh, hey, just trying to get, wrap my head around everything. Are you guys married or, or dating or what? And he says, oh, we're married, but we're, we're, we're dating, but we're planning on getting married soon. And I said, oh, I said, do you guys live together? And he said, yes. And mind you, I've known these people for like two weeks. Had like less than 45 seconds of interaction with him. I said to him, I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't tell you this. What you're doing is a sin and you're stealing from the future joy of your marriage. And he goes, well, that was pretty direct. And I go, that's how I operate, man. I don't want to, I wouldn't be a good pastor if I just patted you on the head and told you you're doing a great job because you're not. And he said, okay. And he came back the next Sunday. I was shocked by the fact that they came back. And she said to me, I called my dad and I told him what you said. And I said, okay. <laughs> you called your dad. So what? You know? <laughs> Am I supposed to be, she goes, my dad told me that, I, that he, we'd found a good church. Hmm, how about that? because my dad knows what I'm doing is a sin. Okay, I want to help you. So again, it's one of those things that, and as I'm talking to her boyfriend, I say, hey, guy, you guys need to make this right. You know, either you need to, to split up, get premarital counseling, get married, or you need to get premarital counseling, get married right away. Or if you guys aren't planning on getting married, you just need to split and go separate ways. But you got to fix this. And I remember him saying to me, do you know how expensive it is for, for, to live in Hawaii? Yeah, I do. I've got four kids. How many do you have? None. Well, do you know how hard it is to live separately? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. No, I don't. I've never done that before in Hawaii. I said, do you know how hard it is to receive God's blessing on your life when you're living in rebellion to him? 
I don't know, I don't know how difficult it is to, to live apart in Honolulu, how expensive it is, but I know how difficult it is to see God's blessing on your life when you're living in rebellion. I do know that for a fact. Well, you know, it's just like she's in between jobs. and Hey, I get all that. That's fine. But you got two choices, obey or disobey. Simple as that. And again, we, when we say things like, well, it's not that big of a deal, we're minimizing sin. And that just goes to show that someone is not yet a mature Christian. And again, I don't look down on people like that. I've been there before. I just want to help you be a more mature Christian. Because when it comes to God, there's no such thing as little sin and big sin. It's all lumped into sin, and it has to be dealt with. And so again, we can't minimize sin because you don't understand God's character. Romans chapter 6, verse number 21. Turn over there if you would. You've got to see this. Romans chapter 6. Again, if uh, you're ever struggling or someone that you know is struggling with habitual sin, what the Bible would call besetting sin, Please know this, Romans 6 will be your friend. You should highlight this. I recommend people that are struggling with habitual sin, whether it be pornography or gossip or, uh, you know, poor financial management or materialism or whatever it is that you can't seem to get a leg up on. Memorize Romans 6. Oh, okay, what verses? All of it. The whole thing. Because this passage tells you sin only has as much power as you give it. Take a look at Romans chapter 6 here, uh, verse number 21. For when you were the servants of sin, back up to verse 20. For you, you were the servants, remember that word servants means slave. We were the slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. Your master was sin, you did not do what was right. And here's what verse number 21 asks. It's a rhetorical question. What fruit had you then... In those things whereof you're now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. Paul's asking a rhetorical question. Hey, tell me again what was so good about that lifestyle of sin that you used to live in? Because now you should be ashamed of those things. It's always amazing to me, people that will sit across the table from me and tell me like, oh, back when I was in college and drinking and partying and stuff like that, I felt so free. I felt, didn't feel like I was so constricted by religion. <laughs> what? No, no, you were a slave to your sin and you could not obey a master of righteousness because you were a slave to sin. There was no pleasure in that. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season, but the Bible also says the end thereof is death. It's only a matter of time before it bites you and before the fun runs out. And so again, when we can say, I can continue to live in sin and it's not that big of a deal, Romans 6 disagrees with you. What fruit do you have in your sin which should actually cause you to be ashamed. Again, you don't understand the character of God if you think you can continue to live in rebellion against God. A flippant attitude towards sin shows a cheapening of the grace of God and a degradation of the sacrifice of Jesus. Hey, look, friend. Jesus died to set you free from your addiction to pornography. Knock it off. Hey, friend, Jesus died to set you free from your laziness. Knuckle up and get it done. Hey, friend, Jesus died to set you free from your addiction to the things of this world. Choose a better master. 
well, it's not that big of a deal. I don't do it all the time. You're cheapening the grace of God. You're mocking the sacrifice of Christ on the cross when you just continue to live in your sin. You don't get it. God has a deep-seated hatred for your sin. You can never, ever, ever be comfortable with it. Look, there's a difference. There's a difference in making mistakes and sinning. For example, somebody cuts me off in traffic, I get frustrated, I think a thought that I shouldn't think. I repent of it, I move on. I haven't gotten a lot of sleep lately, I'm a little bit on edge. Somebody says something to me and I pop off with a smart aleck comment. Not the best, I repent of it. If I've offended another person or sinned against another person, I repent of that and we move on. There's a difference between that because that happens because we're still in our core sinners. There's a difference between that and laying down and being comfortable with your sin. Big difference. I'm talking about laying down and being comfortable with your sin. And here's the sick thing, sick thing about sin. Is that after we sin for a long period of time habitually, stay with me here for a second, our sin becomes so normal that it becomes comfortable. And we find comfort in our sin. That's sick. I'll just, I'll just be honest. I struggled for a long time with idolatry when it came to food. I still love to eat, uh, but there's a period of time in my life where I was constantly thinking about what I'm eating next and how good it's going to be and what it's going to taste like and where I'm going for, for dinner tomorrow night. I'm already planning out what I'm going to eat for dinner tomorrow night and what I'm going to have for an appetizer, my meal, and dessert. I'm thinking about, man, when I get hungry in the middle of the night, there's that Oreo cookies that are going to call my name. I'm going to pour myself a tall glass of Oreo cookies, and I'm going to dunk them in there until about 45 seconds until I get a little bit falling apart, but not too much. You have to scrape it out of the bottom. I'm going to eat that. I mean, just like everything in my life became revolved around food. And it became idolatry in my life. But let me tell you this. Sitting down with a, a plate of fried chicken and warm yeast rolls, <laughs> that was comforting to me. So comforting. There came a point where it's just like, no, no, no. God doesn't want me to find comfort in food. God wants me to find comfort in Him. And I've replaced the comfort that comes from God and His Holy Spirit with the comfort that comes from food. And food became idolatry. Let's be honest. But here's the thing for me. I had a hard time breaking away from that. Because here's the thing. Let's just be honest. You don't have to drink alcohol to live. You don't have to smoke cigarettes to live. You can stop and never do it again. You have to eat to live, right? But when food becomes your master, how do you draw that line where this is no longer sinful and now this is, is sinful? Uh, it was hard. And it was even harder because that's where I found a lot of my comfort from. And, and there comes a point when you habitually give yourself over to sin that that sin becomes comfortable and it's hard to break free from. But again, we have to recognize it for what it is. This put my Savior on a cross. And again, you might look at that and go, wow, a piece of chocolate cake with hot fudge smothered uh, with ice cream. You know, that didn't put Jesus on the cross. My desire to be fulfilled over everything else in life put Jesus Christ on the cross. And just know this. 
If you struggle with food in your life like I did, you're probably struggling with some other areas in your life like I also was. Desire to be liked, pride, materialism, money, status. Because, get this, you're going to love this, a double-minded man is unstable in what? All his ways. It bleeds over. Your willingness to wink at sin in this area will affect the rest of your life as well. Look, for every person who has an adulterous relationship, it didn't start there. Somewhere they made concessions along the way. I'm going to send a text message just a little bit flirty with maybe too many emojis and see what response I get back. Oh, I'm going to give compliments and receive compliments from someone of the opposite sex who's not my, my spouse and kind of see where that goes. And I begin to look at that sin, making provision for the flesh is a sin, and we'll look at that. Well, it's not like I'm actually doing anything wrong. And before you know it, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> Romans chapter 5, verse number 6, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So again, keep in mind that we can't view sin flippantly. It's not something that's not that big of a deal. We've got to fix it. Our pleasure in sin is commanded to be turned into a mourning for our sin. Turn back to James, if you would. James chapter 4, verse number 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Let your joy be turned into heaviness. I don't think it's funny that you went out and got blackout drunk and can't remember what happened. I don't find that funny at all, and you shouldn't either. I don't think it's funny that you got a little bit inappropriate with the coworker, but you didn't get caught. That's not funny to me. I don't think it's funny that you trash other people in our church. I don't think it's funny that you say that you haven't read your Bible in six months. I don't find any of that funny, and you shouldn't either. That's what the Bible says. It means let your laughter be turned into mourning. Sin isn't fun and it's not funny. You know, again, I, I'm just going to confess my sin before you tonight. I, when, when it first came out, I mean, like probably 20 years ago, when reality TV first came out, it's just like, whoa, we get to watch all these crazy people. I remember I was in high school. There's a show called The Real World. They put these people in apartments. For those of you that are old like me, you're like, what? Yeah, they put these people in apartments and they filmed everything that was going on. It was so much fun to watch all this drama unfold, you know? And mind you, this was 25 years ago. Well, they've got a gay guy in the house and how does he interact and live in the same room with a bunch of straight people? Like, this is so much fun, you know? And they're going out and they're getting drunk and they're meeting new people and they're, uh, all this other stuff and you're like, wow, this is really fun to watch all these people do stupid stuff. Now, I'm not doing any of this stuff, but they are and it's so much fun. But then you realize, wait a minute. I am vicariously enjoying sin through them. This television show's not funny. This is not entertaining. This is embarrassing. Christians shouldn't laugh at stuff like this. We should weep at stuff like this. Christians shouldn't indulge in stuff like this. Christians should run from stuff like this. 
and go, yeah, that's terrible. Those shows you were watching 25 years ago. I think it's probably applicable to some things that people watch this week, if I'm just being honest. Christians shouldn't be entertained by garbage and filth like that. We should weep over things like that. I'm, I'm deeply grieved over the fact that our country has chosen the month of June to be Pride Month, and we're going to celebrate sin, and if you don't, you're a bigot and a hate monger, and you just hate people. Hey, how about we have a month where we celebrate single moms? How about we have Single Mom Pride Month? Wouldn't that be something? You know, talk about heroes? <laughs> single moms are, are crushing it. Let's do that. I don't know, why don't we have a month instead of just a day where we celebrate people who have served in our military and given their life? for freedom. I got an idea. Hey, one day out of the month, we celebrate one particular person and tell the story of their sacrifice that they've made. How about we do that? Nope, can't do that. We'll give them a day. And look, to see Christians who are like, oh, I don't agree with it, but I, I have as much pride as they do. Uh-uh, I can't do that. I'm sorry. I weep for people who celebrate that. It hurts my heart. I don't hate anybody. There's not a, a hate bone in my body. I've been given way too much love and grace to hate anybody on planet Earth. Way too much love and grace. I love those people. My heart weeps for them because they don't know the, the value that's found in Christ because if you did, you would not chase that sin because you'd see that Jesus is so much more. So much more. So I see these things and I'm not entertained by it. I don't think it's funny. My laughter has turned into mourning, my joy into heaviness. This is a weighty understanding of the depravity of our heart and the disgust of our sin. I hope you can come to a point in your spiritual maturity. Hear me out. I hope you can come to a point in your spiritual maturity when you are disgusted by your own sin. You know, isn't it easy to be disgusted by other people's sins? Oh, my goodness. I don't know how you make it live like that. That's so disgusting. Ah, oh, repulsive. Whoa. Yeah, there were people like that in the Bible, too. You know what they said? Praise God that I'm not a sinner like this person over here. Praise God for that. They were Pharisees. But I'm talking about a real deal spiritual maturity where when you sin against God, you're grieved by it and you hate your own sin with every fiber of your being. I'm not talking about hating other people's sin. I'm talking about hating your own. Where you can't find any humor in what you've done. You're only grieved. Where if you lived in the Old Testament, you would tear your clothes, find some sackcloth, sit in it and throw ashes on your head and let everybody see. I'm talking about a deep-seated hatred towards sin. When we sin against God, this guilt, shame, and mourning cannot be persistent, but it has to be confessed to God. Turn your foot over to Psalm 51. If you want to know how to repent, Psalm 51 is your guide. David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, Nathan had confronted him with his own sin. David said, told Nathan, I'm sorry. I'm going to repent before God. And here's what his repentance looked like, Psalm 51. 
Again, if you have headings in your Bible under Psalm 51, the chief musician, the Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Here's what David says. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to thy multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Notice again, all personal responsibility. I have sinned. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Make me clean from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Verse number four. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, and I've done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Hey, I look. I realize I have blown it. If you read Psalm 51, you will never see a mention of Bathsheba once at all. Well, God, I'm sorry, but if she wasn't taking a bath naked outside, this wouldn't have happened. You know, I mean, I asked her to come. You know, it takes two. You know, she came. I mean, it's like, really, I mean, it's just all my fault. No, no, no. 100% my fault. I can't make excuses for anything that I've done. I, and I alone, have sinned against you, God, and it grieves me to the depths of my soul. Verse 5, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. David's not saying that his mother committed a sinful act to conceive him. He's saying, from the moment that I was conceived, I have been in sin. Since the very beginning, sin is who I am. Verse 6, behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and hidden part. Thou shalt make known thy wisdom. Purge me with hyssop. There's a medicinal cleansing agent for open wounds. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear thy joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hey, I want to feel clean. I want to have joy again. I want to have happiness. You can break me and crush me down to dust because I know that you'll always build me back stronger. That's what he says in verse number 8. Verse number nine, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach the transgressors thy way and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. My tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth will show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise do good unto thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Thou shalt be pleased with the sacrifice of, not sacrifice for sin, but the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offerings, with the whole burnt offering, they shall offer bullocks upon that altar. You talk about a guy who poured out his guts and grieved over his own sin. He did it, but get this. At the end of it, he realizes that God forgives and now he is clean. That's the thing you got to understand. Your guilt that you carry over sin, you can't carry it forever. Because once you confess your sin to God and God's forgiven you, you're clean. And so our joy is restored through repentance. 
That's the thing. When we sin against God, should we feel guilt? Should we feel shame? Should we be convicted of our sin? Absolutely, yes, all of the above. But once we repent of our sin, and we repent out of grief and shame and desire for wholeness with God, man, that weight is lifted and joy returns. If you're a Christian still carrying guilt and shame from sin, longer than a week ago. You're doing it wrong. We might look back at our lives and be embarrassed. We might look back at our lives and wish things could have been different. But guilt or shame for sin? No, 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 no. That's what the cross is for. My guilt and my shame has been dealt with on the cross of Christ. I don't have to sit around in sackcloth and ashes for the next two years to prove that I'm really sorry. Because God doesn't desire, just what, like what David said in, in Psalm 51, God doesn't desire religious acts. God doesn't desire sacrifices. God doesn't want you to really prove that you mean what you say. God just wants you to have a clean heart. And that comes through repentance. Look, nobody lived in sackcloth and ashes. They didn't live there. It was a brief period of time of mourning. We shouldn't live in shame and guilt either. Nobody wore sackcloth and ashes for months at a time, years at a time. It was a period of brokenness where they mourned over what they had done, where they were ashamed and embarrassed for the way that they had transgressed against God. And they wanted everybody to know, hey, look, I am going through it right now. I'm disappointed with myself. I'm upset with myself. And I just need a minute to grieve. But then there came a point where they got up, they got dressed, they washed their head, they washed their face, and they moved on. And friend, if you're carrying the guilt and shame of your sin, you're doing it wrong. But please understand this. I was just talking about this even tonight with someone. Self-forgiveness is not a biblical concept. Some of you might need to write that down and that help you this week. Sometimes people say, oh, for what I've done, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't seem to forgive myself. That is pop culture psychology that's not a biblical concept at all. A biblical concept is this. God has forgiven me, and now I have his grace to move on. Oh, I can't forgive myself. You haven't sinned against yourself. You sinned against God. God's forgiven you. Move on. Simple as that. It's, it's interesting to me. I almost use the word funny, but it's not funny at all. It's, it's super sad to see people who are stuck in a guilt and shame cycle. You don't have to live there. You're able to get out from under that at any moment that you choose to. Well, I'm just so ashamed of what I've done in the past. Stop. If you've really repented, God's forgiven you, you get the, the freedom to move on. That's what the cross says to you. You're forgiven. Now, again, if you're stuck in a, guilt, a cycle of guilt and shame because you're living in a cycle of sin, by all means, continue to indulge in your shame because you should. But you can break the cycle anytime you want to. Jesus Christ bore our shame, our disgrace, and our dishonor, and it has been defeated.
one of the thousand reasons why I greatly, greatly, with every fiber of my being, dislike the system of Catholicism is the idea of penance. Hey, do this stuff and, and it'll prove that you're really sorry. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen the things like that they, they do in the, in the Philippines. And I, I only know because I've seen it in the Philippines. The videos I've seen online of people literally crucifying themselves to crosses. People climbing up the steps to a cathedral until their knees bleed again and again and again as a way of self-flagellation for the wrong that they've done. I'm thankful I don't have to do that. And you know what? My heart breaks for all those people who feel like they need to do that. Because my guilt and shame was put upon Jesus. He was dishonored. He was shamed. He was embarrassed. He was humiliated so that I don't have to be. That if, man, you want to bring something out of my past that I've done wrong, feel free to do it. I'm just going to tell you, hey, I'm really sorry about that and I would never do that again, but praise God I'm forgiven. Oh, you don't know what I've done. I'll just be honest with you right now. I don't care what you've done. You cannot out the grace of God. You can't. Finally, final thought here tonight. Sin only steals your joy when you stay stuck. Should your laughter be turned to mourning? Definitely. Should your joy be turned to heaviness? Definitely. Should you weep? Should you mourn over your sin? For sure. But the only reason that you would continue that is if you continue in your sin. Just know this, sin always steals your joy. 100%. And the longer you stay stuck in a cycle of sin, your joy just continues to go down and down and down and down. And please understand, joy and happiness are two different things, for those of you that don't know. Happiness means my circumstances make me happy. Things are going my way, bills are paid, money's in the bank, health is good, I got a full tank of gas. Who knew that that would be a reason to praise God these days, right? Man, life is good. That's happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. It doesn't last. Joy is spiritual happiness based on spiritual circumstances. Hey, I might not be able to make rent next month, but God's still good. Hey, I'm still waiting on those test results back from the doctor, but whatever comes back, God's always been faithful. Hey, I got this job opportunity that I'm looking at, but if I don't get selected, man, God's been better to me than I've ever deserved. That's joy. Joy is not predicated on your circumstances. Joy is based on the goodness of God. But when you sin, remember last week, sin takes you away from God so that you don't enjoy the presence of God. You don't feel the joy that comes from God because you're away from God in your sin. So draw nigh unto God. God draws nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands. Sinners, double-minded, don't laugh at your sin. Mourn your sin. But once you repent, joy comes back. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know for sure that you're saved. Maybe you need to be born again. Maybe some of you have been telling yourself that you are saved when you know for a fact you're really not. Maybe you need to do that tonight. Stop lying to yourself. 
Maybe some of you, as I preach, it's gotten kind of heavy on you because you know there's a sin that you're dealing with that you don't see as that big of a deal, but now you do. Repent of that tonight. Don't ever pick it up again. You can do that tonight. God will give you freedom. God will give you victory. Maybe some of you, you say, it's a little bit more difficult. I've got to unwind some things before I can be right with God. Good. Start tonight. Start tonight. If it's going to take you a couple months, six months, a year to unwind what you're mixed up in, good. Start tonight. Because it's not going to get any easier. And just trust God. I'll leave you this final thought. You cannot get God's blessings without doing things God's way. It sounds really simple, really basic, but I see so many people that try to get God's blessings by doing an end run around God. It doesn't work that way. You want God's blessings? Pursue God and you'll get his blessings. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.